A word of warning before we begin. This episode discusses palliative care and end-of-life planning, which are difficult topics for most listeners. Please visit our show notes to find links to services that can offer you advice and support. I guess everybody thinks they're immortal until they're reminded they're not. Yeah, I suppose so. I'm not one given to hysterics, but then death is pretty serious. Yeah, there were sleepless nights that you might just die. I was prepared not to come back home if that were the outcomes. I'd said what I wanted to be done for my children and, you know, told my husband, you know, don't cry too much, just move on, make sure, you know, you marry somebody who cares for my kids because I will haunt you. <laughs> Over the course of this podcast series, we've talked to people currently dealing with a cancer diagnosis as well as cancer survivors. I like to call us thrivers. People who are alive today or those that have completely overcome this disease thanks to decades worth of medical advancement, the hard work of the staff at Guy's and St. Thomas's, and their own determination. But it wouldn't be right for us to devote an entire podcast to this disease without acknowledging the fact that it kills people. Sometimes a patient and their physician can do everything in their power, and that still might not be enough. On today's episode, we're going to tackle the concept of death head on. We'll speak to a palliative care matron who works exclusively with patients with life-limiting illnesses. Hear the testimony of someone who helped plan a close friend's funeral whilst they were in hospice, and talk to a patient who was recently declared terminal. Now what? Your Cancer Support Podcast is an NHS podcast series where you'll hear frank and honest accounts from over a dozen cancer patients about their experiences with a disease that at some point, directly or indirectly, affects us all. Consider them your peer support network. I'm your host, Julia Bradbury. In 2021, I became one of the 375,000 people who are diagnosed with cancer in the UK every year. I know firsthand what it's like to have your life suddenly upended by this disease and the havoc it can wreak on your body, mind and everything in between. I also know that with a little bit of luck and a lot of expertise, that surviving cancer isn't just possible, it's becoming more and more likely with every passing year. If you're listening to this podcast, it's likely that you or someone you love has recently received a cancer diagnosis. No doubt you've got questions, and lots of them. Our hope is that this series can provide you with some answers. Our peers come from a wide variety of backgrounds. One thing that they all have in common? First-hand experience with cancer in its many shapes and forms. So think of us as your cancer support group, just in audio form. Today's topic of discussion, palliative care and end-of-life planning. You matter because you are you and you matter to the end of your life. We will do all we can, not only to help you die peacefully, but also to live until you die. That's a quote from Cicely Saunders, a pioneer in the hospice movement and someone who led the charge on emphasising the importance of palliative care. Palliative care is care that's designed to improve your quality of life by making you feel better physically and emotionally. 
It's not designed to control or cure your illness, but rather to give you independence, comfort and support. Mark, a retired civil servant from London, has been receiving palliative care for a number of years now. His cancer journey started over a decade and a half ago. I think it was about 2007. I found I was passing blood in my urine. Um, I didn't do anything about it. And I was walking across the bridge from Westminster and I was in so much pain that I went into St Thomas's Hospital and I got kept in. And I was told I had kidney cancer. Mark had surgery but found himself back in hospital just a few months later. Once I'd had the kidney operation, I was told I was clear. And then at a checkup, I was shaking so badly that they sent me for a Parkinson's test. And I was dead diagnosed with Parkinson's. Over the next decade and a half, the bad news came thick and fast. I had the right kidney cancer at 44. I was 44. I had skin cancer at 46. I had bowel cancer at 56, prostate cancer at 58, thyroid cancer at 60. Each time I was told that I had various different cancers over the years, um, the bottom dropped out of my world several times. The numerous treatments Mark's had over the years have certainly taken their toll on him. Well, just recently I had thyroid cancer. I had the thyroid removed. It had spread slightly to my voice box, so I had a bit shaved off of that. But now it's gone onto my lungs and it's incurable. I'm taking a drug called lamvitamin, which suppresses it. The one trouble is it reduces your immune system. And in between that last November, I had a serious lung infection and I was getting fluid on the lungs and um, I had to have a five and a half hour operation, which I had a slim chance of survival, but I'm still here. Um, I've now only got 40, 45% lung, lung capacity which is why I get out of breath all the time. Despite the best efforts of the staff at the NHS, he eventually learned that his lung cancer was incurable. It was virtually the worst moment of my life. Um, you feel depressed, you feel sad, and you think to yourself, I've had so many before, why am I getting this now? But uh, the doctors staff had have been magnificent. Well, you can't sit back and be miserable. Life still goes on. So you've got to get on with it and make the most of the time you got. Given he's operating at half his usual lung capacity, Mark can't do all the things he'd love to do. But he still has plenty he'd like to accomplish with the time he has left. Chief amongst them, spending time with his son. But I'm determined that I'm going to go to a cricket match with my son and my wife and we'll sit there because he's a member of the Barmy Army. So he wants to go and he wants me to go with him. So that's one goal that I'm determined I'm going to do. 
Cancer, as we've spoken about before on this series, frequently results in a shift, sometimes a radical one, in a patient's priorities. For a lot of people, that means refocusing on what's meaningful to their lives. For Mark, that was his family. Given the gravity of the situation that we're dealing with, Mark felt they could use a little guidance when it came to communication. So he enlisted the help of a mental health professional. Got referred to the Dimbleby Centre and seen a cancer psychiatrist. Um, so that we, because he finds it difficult to express his feelings because he's on the autistic spectrum disorder. But because there's somebody else there, he can talk freely. And he, he seems to be coping all right. But the three of us have got different psychiatrists. And we go on separate appointments because it's a lot of pressure and a big burden on my wife. And because it gives us a chance to express our true feelings without upsetting everybody else. I've been able to discuss things that, as the male head of the family, I wouldn't discuss them with the wife and boy because I wouldn't want to upset them. But because I can talk to somebody else, I can say what I'm really feeling. Julie's quite a practical girl and we brought my son up to be a practical sort of person. It's a case of, okay, you've got that. Let's make some memories and enjoy the time that I've got left. Like other patients we've talked to, Mark's sense of humour is an important coping mechanism for him. But even more than that, it's a cornerstone of his identity. One he worked hard to retain in the face of extreme adversity. It's become more of a joke when I go in the hospital now these days. Because I tell him I'm trying to get around every department. For Mark, his time is now split between hospital visits and making meaningful memories with his nearest and dearest. Funnily enough, his two worlds collided in a unique way very recently. Can't walk more than about 10 to 15 feet without really losing my breath. But I've got a wheelchair because my son's a porter at St Thomas's Hospital. So he pushes and shoves me along when we go out. And what was quite nice was I got to see him when I was in hospital because he's working shifts. So I used to pop in and out just to say hello. And when I had to go down for x-rays and CT scans, when I was in hospital, he pushed me down. <laughs> it's a proud moment. Planning your own funeral for most of us, that's not something we've ever thought about or will ever think about. But for people in long-term palliative care, it's an important part of the end-of-life process. Mookie, a London-based creative technologist, was intimately involved with the planning of a close friend's funeral. That friend is unfortunately no longer around to tell that story. Her name, though, is Tanya. I know her from my women in tech industry, and we've spoken on many, many panels together and on the kind of, you know, industry circuit. And she comes from like a gaming background of mine and my media and R&D and tech and broadcasting. 
In May 2018, Tanya suddenly started experiencing swelling in her abdomen. When she went to the hospital, it was discovered that she had stage four cancer, affecting multiple organs. She had to stay in the hospital, had emergency surgery, and had all of her ovaries removed, part of her bowel removed, and then treatment on the liver. Tanya's prognosis wasn't good. Her cancer was extremely advanced. Her friends, Muki included, rallied around her. Tanya lived alone in a studio flat. The family wasn't really nearby. Uh, they were kind of scattered around, so that's where the friends stepped in to help. We formed a little WhatsApp group called Team Tanya, and you know, then 20 or 30, 40 people from around the world got on it from people that she knew just to kind of send pictures and encourage. But myself and a few other people that are based in London were able to, and, and within the UK, based in the UK, were able to take turns, go to hospital with her, go get blood checks. Tanya documented her experiences on a Facebook page, which she called How I Live Now. In 2019, her condition took a sudden turn for the worse, and she was told she had two weeks to live. Tanya was moved into hospice care in St. Joseph's Hospital in London. Everything was happening so quickly. That was quite horrible because there were no plans for anything and we didn't know what to do as friends. Like, oh gosh, what if something happened? What do you do? Like, you know, no onward journey plans. Then, out of the blue, Tanya improved. She wasn't out of the woods by any means, but she did get to return home from the hospice. For Muki and the rest of Tanya's friends, it felt like an opportunity to plan. The same group that took it upon themselves to keep Tanya's spirits up, bring her to appointments and keep her company, now tasked themselves with helping her make end-of-life arrangements. You never want to think about the day that you've got to prepare, but we started to go, hey, let's, okay, in 2019, you nearly left us and we didn't have any plan. What could we do? So we started to kind of have a little planning committee of like, Hey, what would your funeral look like? What would the party look like? The beginning of 2020, a friend of mine's uh, part of our little cluster father had passed away a few years prior, and she had heard of this amazing funeral planner called Poetic Endings. And um, other funeral homes are available, but they uh, we met them in 2020, and they're all female-led, female-founded, based in Southeast London, down in Forest Hill, and we met with them to start to make a plan. The whole process even got Mookie thinking about how she wanted her own funeral to look. Because even at the hospice and at hospital, doctors can never predict a day. Like, you just don't know. So the advice is that you can start making a plan of what you would want. What would you want to see if you were going to your own funeral? You know, like for me, I want primary colors and a roller disco. Like, you know, let's like start thinking about rather than, you know, because unfortunately I have had other like folks, you know, pass away really suddenly, you know, like a heart attack. Like, and, they, and it was nothing planned, nothing. And I was like, and then it's like somebody else doing it for you. When Tanya did eventually return to hospice, Mookie was blown away by the care and the compassion of the staff there. These are like filled with amazing humans and I, I just can't I can't stress enough that it's the best place to be if you're if somebody is in that situation because it's a sigh of relief that 
you're able to relax and be relaxed and have the most dignified way of passing and also help the support team around you be a little bit at ease too, knowing that you've got 24 seven care at all times. And it's, it's a calm, loving place. You, you just feel like good, like it's such a, like a good feeling when you walk into that space. I, you don't feel scared when you're walking into a hospice. Well, I, I, I felt the opposite. I felt, oh gosh, she's back where she needs, she's, she's where she needs to be right now. Tanya sadly passed away on March 31st, 2023. One thing that Mookie remembers being a preoccupation for her friend during those final weeks and months was what am I leaving behind? What can my daughter be proud of me for? What can my sister be proud of me for? Um, you know, she's 41. That's young. So she was like, that was that panic of like, oh my gosh, how will I be remembered? And it was such a horrible thing to see somebody so in fear of what other people are thinking. And she, But she was still happy with her life and know she known she had achieved a lot. I think that was like one thing, like, again, wanting to leave a legacy of accolades and greatness and things like that. But her legacy, as we said at the funeral, and I gave a eulogy and another friend gave eulogies, is her bringing together people and new friends, old friends, and sticking together. And, you know, that's important too. So it doesn't always have to be, you know, physical, tangible Nair, I say superficially thing, but you know, it's like, it's also like your heart and what you're leaving behind and the, like who you loved and what you loved, people remember you for too. Over the course of this series, most of the voices you've heard belong to people who've had cancer or are currently going through cancer treatment. But what does it look like to be on the other side of the equation? We spoke to a member of staff at Guy's and St Thomas's, whose entire job revolves around palliative care and working with patients with life-limiting illnesses. I'm Joey Bate, and I'm one of the palliative care matrons at Guy's and St Thomas's NHS Foundation Trust in London. It's really about helping you and also those close to you to cope with the consequences of a life-limiting illness. And we know that emotional, spiritual, family and financial worries can be just as important as physical problems. Um, and we aim to support you um, and to give you the best quality of life, really. We do visit people in hospitals um, or in outpatient clinics, but we also offer a home visiting service as well. So we're quite unique. In Joey's experience, people unfamiliar with the ins and outs of her job tend to have negative associations with her line of work. I think in, in society, there is definitely a misconception around palliative care, what we do and how we can actually really help people. A lot of people are very fearful of the name of palliative care. Um, <clears throat> they think that we only represent death and dying or that palliative care is only relevant for the last maybe days, weeks potentially months of life, but actually um, we have patients on our caseload who we've known for several years sometimes, and we always love to see people recover and get better. 
sadly we won't all live forever we are all mortal beings um and i think we don't talk about it enough um and i i think we could probably all say that we've all witnessed situations in our lives where um we know that um unnecessary distress could have been avoided and we were worried about upsetting people or worried to explore issues because they can be upsetting a big part of Joey's job is getting patients comfortable with talking openly about death. If we are able to remove some of the fear and talk openly about the future, actually, it often gives people that sense of feeling and control or peace of mind and actually helps those around you to know what's important to you if something ever did happen to you. And those, import, those important conversations are so um, significant and they can be very tender as well. And it's often just about listening and, and exploring um, and not, not being afraid to, yeah, explore some of those deeper issues, I suppose. We always try and tailor it to the individual and it really depends on what, what are the, one of our favorite questions is what is most important to you? And that is really going to be different for every single person. Um, but that is uh, something that we like to explore. It, it's a two-way conversation. We probably will ask a lot of questions on our first time meeting someone because we want to get a good sort of baseline understanding of how they are at that moment. But we're looking at all their physical symptoms, whether that's pain or nausea or sleep or you know, whatever the physical symptoms are that that individual is experiencing. And we're kind of experts in managing symptoms. Um, but then we do explore kind of social situation and the supportive networks around that individual if and how, you know, what, yeah, like I said, what's important to them. But then also spirituality is not just about religion and, and faith. Actually, it goes beyond that. It's about what makes you as a person um, and how you connect with others and how you work and how you process information. Some of Joey's patients ask her for book recommendations, documentaries, music, even podcasts. At this point, she's a walking encyclopedia for death-related media. We've included links to some of her favourites in the show notes, where you'll also find a link to Let's Talk, a resource created by Joey and her team. Advanced care planning covers a broad range of administrative tasks related to end-of-life planning. Everything from making a will to giving someone power of attorney. It might be that you want to tell everybody that you're a vegetarian. <laughs> and, you know, if you couldn't speak for yourself or you lost your capacity by, you know, you would have certain dietary requirements. For, for some people, that's really important. And um, for someone else, it might be about their, their pets or the people that they would want around them or certain people that they wouldn't want around them as well. Complicated you know, family dynamics as well sometimes. And actually, if we know that there are certain individuals that that patient wouldn't want them to visit them or whatever, then unless it's written down, how would we know if that person can't speak for themselves? And then for some people, it might be related to their spiritual practices as well about, you know, maybe not wanting certain medications if it meant they couldn't say specific prayers or, um, you know, like I said, it really is going to be different for every person, but it, it has very helpful kind of prompts and questions to be able to think about those things um, and in, it encourages um, opening up that dialogue as well. A relatively recent consideration is the concept of your digital legacy. 
I think we live so much online these days. We have online bank accounts, we have our Facebook pages, we have you know Instagram, Twitter, um, everything. But having some thoughts and plans about what you would want to happen to your online information is quite helpful as well. Um, and there is a, a brilliant website called digitallegacyassociation.org um, and there's lots of information on their website about that as well. What's most important for Joey and the rest of her team is that to the best of their abilities, they take the fear and pain out of dying. So often people talk about trying to achieve a good death, which in a way, like that's kind of an oxymoron. How can something be good if it's a death? So I think a more helpful way to explain it is actually a a gentle death and a death that is pain-free and dignified and peaceful. And that's what we would want to achieve. Most of us have no problem talking about birth, welcoming new life into the world. It's a natural, joyous process. Death, on the other hand, no less natural, is somewhat taboo. The more we can all talk openly about palliative care and end-of-life planning, the faster we can normalise it. Doing so will make the difficult conversations we all have to have much easier to endure and help us plan for what Joey described as a gentle death. On the next episode of Now What? Your Cancer Support Podcast, our topic of discussion will be finding your support system. I know, we're not married, but uh, we're still on probation. He's been a brilliant partner and brick throughout all this, but he still has the ability to irritate and uh, run the tap when you're trying to do uh, a microphone interview. Now What? Your Cancer Support Podcast is an NHS podcast produced by What's the Story Sounds. It's hosted by me, Julia Bradbury. For more information on the topics discussed in today's episode, as well as links to additional resources, please check out our show notes. This series was created by the leading cancer specialists at Guy's and St Thomas's Hospital and their patients, whose personal testimony you'll hear on this and every other episode of the podcast. We're beyond grateful for their contributions. The peers who featured on this episode are Jim, Joey, Mark, Mookie, Teresa and Vimbai. This episode was produced and edited by Jack O'Kennedy. Executive producers are Daryl Brown, Sophie Ellis, Stephanie Fraser, Naomi Good, Zainab Noor, Jessica Nyman and Julia Tadeo. Special thanks to Placida Ojinaka, Abiola Coca, Evan Russell and Guy's Cancer Charity.